This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. For more than 30 years, the nation's independent producers have been able to bid for money from the public purse to make programmes for broadcasters via the government's broadcasting funding agency, New Zealand On Air. But from next year, the new public media entity, replacing RNZ and TVNZ, will hold the purse strings for the bulk of the taxpayers' money for local programmes, and programme makers are anxious about that. But if there's more money available for the stuff that they make, what's the problem? Also on Media Watch, we ask why journalists walked off the job this week and picketed their own premises. But first, we look at how the media handled some awkward questions in the news this week, and one rather dumb one. So if Boris ever comes to New Zealand, is stuff going to push a headline that says boozy, rule-breaking nose bear Boris um, meets Ardern? And what about the incumbent UK Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak? Uh, he was at these parties as well. He got a fine by police. Is stuff going to run an article saying partying PM Sunak meets Ardern? Are we going to have, have a headline like that? I doubt it. That was Today FM's Lloyd Burr, the afternoon host, taking on stuff for describing Finland's Prime Minister Sanna Marin as the party Prime Minister in a headline and push notification. As Lloyd Burr pointed out, there have been plenty more male Prime Ministers, much more worthy of that label, than someone who was filmed on a phone a couple of times dancing around during a do at her own house. Former Australian Prime Minister Bob Hawke, for example, once held the world record for sculling a yard glass, while another Aussie PM, Tony Abbott, once missed a crucial parliamentary vote because he was hungover. And our own Prime Minister, Robert Muldoon, called a snappy election while under the influence back in 1984. Well, Stuff later changed its headline this week about Santa Murren, and as we'll hear later in this programme... Stuff's had other things to worry about going on in-house as well. But Stuff wasn't the only outlet copping criticism for coverage of that Prime Ministerial Summit, and as Hayden Donnell now reports, posing some awkward questions about a matter of life and death as well. Yeah, a lot of people will be wondering, are you two meeting just because, you know, you're similar in age and, you know, got a lot of, you know, common stuff there, you know, when you got into politics and stuff, or can Kiwis actually expect to see more deals between our two countries down the line. That's a News Talk ZB journalist asking Jacinda Ardern and Finnish Prime Minister Sanna Marin whether they're meeting because, to paraphrase only slightly, they're both younger women. The response to that query has not been altogether positive. First, the journalist was rebuffed by Ardern. My first question is I wonder whether or not anyone ever asked Barack Obama and John Key if they met because they were of similar age. Uh, we, of course, uh, have uh, a higher proportion of men in politics. It, it's reality. Because two women meet, it's not simply because of the agenda. Then Marin added this. Yeah, we are meeting because we are prime ministers. After that, the criticism started flooding in from hundreds of people on social media. Then it came from those in the wider New Zealand media. This is Lloyd Burr on Today FM. Does he think they're meeting just because they're both young women Prime Ministers? You think that's why they're meeting? Do you think she's come all the way to New Zealand to talk fashion and beauty tips, maybe childbearing as well? The criticism continued in the international media. Here's a headline from CBS News in the US. Prime Ministers respond to reporters' sexist question about their historic meeting. There are real questions on why Marin is here, given our countries aren't huge trading partners as things stand. Thankfully, the Finnish Prime Minister kindly pointed some of those reasons out to the News Talk ZB journalist. 
uh, we have a business delegation with us. Uh, we have a lot of things uh, in common, but also a lot of things where we can do uh, much more uh, together. Uh, one of those uh, things are technologies. Mm -hmm. I really worry about the dependencies that we have right now on authoritarian countries when it comes to new technologies, uh, the digital infrastructure uh, in our societies, and also the natural resources that we are dependent on. Good to know, though it's hard not to think a simple what are you here to do would have got a similar response without generating any international headlines about sexism. News Talk ZB may have produced near global consensus on the poor quality of that line of questioning, but it arguably discharged its duties in more responsible ways elsewhere. It was among the media organisations charged with covering the bulletin-leading case of two parents who had refused to consent to their sick child getting a desperately needed operation because it would mean he might receive a transfusion of blood from a donor who had been vaccinated against COVID-19. The lawyer and outdoors party leader Sue Gray is representing that family in court and has been making media appearances in that role. That's presented challenges for media who don't want to give their platform to her anti-vax views, and it's resulted in some on-air flare-ups. Here's one involving Grey and News Talk ZB's Heather Duplessy Allen. Inflammatory factors in the blood, for example, that's why we're getting these myocarditis cases. No, no, okay, Sue, 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 I don't want to go into, into, into your beliefs on this one because I just I think we're never going to agree on it, so let's just stick to, it, to no, no, the facts we don't on need it. To, we don't, well, this is one of the issues, though. We don't need to agree to respect yeah, but I just, I just can't, views. Sue, I've got to be honest with you. I just, I just can't go there, okay? I just cannot okay, be bothered no, no, with this. A similar scenario played out the following day on RNZ's Morning Report when Corin Dan interviewed Gray. Here's the interview's first interruption. If we look at no, no, the Federal asked, Drug Administration, no, the Canadian uh, Blood Services Board, these have all found there no, is no, no issue here. We've got New Zealand's MedSafe, we've got the Blood Service, no, no, the Immunisation Centre. The overwhelming okay, scientific evidence it. is clear. I don't want to have a discussion about the research because well, you and I are lay people. Reason, we trust the, the experts. Court. That devolved into a lengthy oscillation between Gray's attempts to recite anti-vax talking points and Dan's increasingly exasperated interruptions. When you've got a very unique condition, it's important to do additional research because the doctors are busy. They know what's generally oh, come okay. Come on, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm not gonna, no, we're not going to have that discussion. I, I want to come back to the other issue, well, which is the danger around a precedent here. Predictably, Gray's supporters have taken this treatment as evidence of a vast media cover-up. Meanwhile, the out-of-context or inaccurate claims about vaccines she did get to broadcast might have worried some listeners. Thankfully, having told those listeners to trust experts, not laypeople, Morning Report and other media did allow those experts some airtime. Dan talked to haematologist Jim Fayed later in the show. Meanwhile, immunology professor Nikki Turner appeared on Heather Duplessy Allen's ZB show and on Three's The Project. Surely if you wanted to, though, you could find out the blood type of these um, unvaccinated people and do the screening and then supply their blood to the baby. Yes, you could do all of that, but it requires quite a lot of effort and quite a lot of process. Um, and our services are under an enormous amount of strain. Um, and you can't easily just do it for one individual. You know, we do this en masse for all our very ill and very needy people. So it is theoretically possible, and certainly when we have emergencies, we drop our quality standards. But we would not drop our quality standards when there's no medical reason to do so. These experts provided a useful corrective, but another way to avoid broadcasting misinformation is to just not book people who spread it. 
Before his interview with Gray, Dan sounded a little agonised over having to cover this issue when previewing Morning Report on First Up with Nathan Rudady. Now we'll talk to the lawyer of the mother about this. Uh, so that will be just after 7 o'clock this morning. This is obviously a very tricky story, a very sensitive story, but uh, nonetheless uh, one that is um, in the court. As Dan said, this is a matter before the courts and it's a major media story that's led news bulletins and filled front pages, including the Herald on Thursday under the headline, We're Not Prisoners. It's probably not realistic to ban Gray from media appearances under those circumstances. In the spin-off, Stuart Soman Lund recognised that before suggesting an approach for reporters interviewing her. Those interviewing her should either be fully prepared to counter in detail her anti-vaccination rhetoric or, given the likelihood it will quickly descend into conspiracy territory, cut it off early. Maybe Dan and Duplessis Allen could have been better served committing to one of those two roads. But at least their questions were incisive and on topic, even if they weren't met with useful responses. If this week's Prime Ministerial press conference showed us anything, it's that it's less embarrassing for our journalists to have it that way round than the opposite. Hayden Donnell there, looking at how the media handled awkward questions in the news this past week, and one rather daft one. Up to nearly $9,000 a week for some high-paying jobs being done by contractors. About a quarter of this $40 million transmission money that's been set aside to combine RNZ and TVNZ into one entity is going on contractors. That was Guy Nespiner on Morning Report last Tuesday telling listeners about hefty rates of pay pocketed by some people working on the transition of RNZ and TVNZ into the new public media entity planned by the government, though not the transmission of either broadcaster, as Guyan's small slip of the tongue said there. It was RNZ's reporter Phil Pennington who'd been following the money, which he pointed out was coming not from either broadcaster, but from the coffers of the Ministry for Culture and Heritage, which oversees the government's strong public media programme, the cornerstone of which is that new public media entity. It is Ministry of Culture and Heritage money, uh, so it's not being spent through RNZ or TVNZ. It's the transition process itself. So it's in July next year that the entity, the, the merge thing, gets its government funding. But this is $40 million to set it all up, making public media bigger and joining it up. But others in the media don't want bigger joined up public media, regardless of the cost, as we'll hear. Now those contractors are of course only employed for a short term though, and the Ministry told RNZ this week the pay packets were in line with government procurement guidelines. Nevertheless, those sums struck a chord with the Herald. Consultants cash in. $6,000 a week paid out to each contractor in the RNZ-TVNZ merger. Now that wasn't quite right. Phil's story clearly said $6,000 was the average weekly sum and most contracts were worth between five and 6000 a week. But TVNZ's One News that night also reckoned those rates were newsworthy along with this. National slammed the spend, saying hard-working Kiwis' taxes are going straight into the back pockets of consultants. When in opposition, Labour called similarly high salaries for consultants a disgrace. Rival media organisations, though, have not been so shy in asking questions or airing concerns and criticisms of the plan or their own opinions. Barry, when you see what, what the consultants are getting paid for the TVNZ RNZ merger, do you think you picked the wrong job? <laughs> That's easy <laughs> money, isn't what? it? 
It was News Talk ZB's political editor Barry Soper there who went on to tell Heather Duplessis on this on the ZB Drive show last Tuesday. Make no mistake of what this is about, Heather. It's driven by the likes of Willie Jackson, started by Chris Farfoy, a former TVNZ journo, now uh, driven by Willie Jackson. It's about getting more Māori on television, and you'll see the face of TVNZ will change as a result of it. Broadcasting and Media Minister Willie Jackson, also the minister overseeing Māori media, has said in the past he wants to see the new public media entity feature more Māori content and journalism, but there is more to the plan than just making TVNZ's output more Māori, as Barry Soper put it there on News Talk ZB. The funding and the structure could give New Zealanders at least the possibility of something more like the joined-up multimedia public service platforms that people have in Ireland, Australia, the UK and other countries. Barry Soper and Heather Duplessis-Allen's employer NZME opposes the creation of Aotearoa New Zealand Public Media and another outfit concerned about the impact on its members is the umbrella group representing programme makers and production companies, the Screen Production and Development Association, or SPADA for short. It fears the new, bigger public media entity might not commission programmes from its producers in the way that the government broadcasting funding agency New Zealand On Air does now. Now, the Minister Willie Jackson was due to speak at the SPADA annual conference, but he pulled out because Parliament was operating under urgency last week. But the new public media entity was discussed at the event with executives from RNZ and TVNZ in a discussion run by SPADA President Irene Gardner. Now, she's a former head of commissioning at TVNZ and currently a board member at RNZ. So this week I asked her if a new public media entity has more money for what the screen producers make What's the problem? Some of our members think it's great that the new entity will have a public media mandate. Some of our members would prefer it to say the way it is now. And likewise, the other piece of the equation, which is the NZ on Air funding going directly over to the new entity, some think that's a good idea, it might streamline some things. Others would prefer it to say the way it is now. However, the thing we are all absolutely united on is that the new entity be funded adequately to realise its aims. The other thing that producers are concerned about is just the thing of behaviour of the new entity, that the terms of trade won't change dramatically, that commissioning policy won't dramatically change, that there won't be a sudden pulling in of lots of uh, production internally rather than you know with uh, external producers. But we've kind of given it the benefit of the doubt. We've kind of gone, you know, if this goes well, it could be great. All along, the people involved in this process have actually said the status quo isn't an option, you know, to have like a tiny or relatively small RNZ as a dedicated public broadcaster and a state-owned TV commercial company, you know, with probably a declining ageing audience's viewing habits shift. Do you believe the status quo is literally not an option? Because as you mentioned there, some of your members do want things to stay as they are. They couldn't stay absolutely as they are because there is going to have to be some sort of a solution to what will happen with, you know, linear TV, the network television part of TVNZ, as we progress more down the streamers route. So, yeah, no, I think that is true, that the status quo would not really be an option. There might have been some other ways to skin the cat. This is quite a bold way of 
doing it. You know, this is a once in a lifetime change to broadcasting policy. Just make sure you get it right. Well, I can understand why your members at Sparta, uh, the screen producers, are concerned because for 30 years or so, they've had the system whereby you know they can get public funds with you know from a contestable process, suggesting a program. A big broadcaster wants to screen it on television; it gets funded. But with the new public media what entity, what's the difference? Some of this money won't go to New Zealand on air. It'll go to the entity. But there could be even more money. So why aren't program makers uh, more excited about this? Yeah, that's a good question. It took us a little while to get the reassurance from the minister and the ministry that there was, in fact, going to be you know, more money than there currently is now. And so there was this very uncertain period when the NZ on Air initiative was announced. I think after our presentation at the Sparta conference... The feeling I got was that people sort of understood things a little better and why it was happening. Yeah, I kind of get the feeling people are starting to feel more positive about it. I think there is some anxiety about NZ On Air because NZ On Air has been a good operator for a long time and that contestable funding model has always worked really well. And so I think there is that fear of, okay, so there's going to be money over there in the public media entity and they will hopefully be doing all kinds of interesting local content. But is there now enough to keep interesting public media content happening across the other platforms? Well, you say the system works well via New Zealand On Air. And I guess it works well for screen producers in a sense. It's given them a a reliable stream of of money or at least access to it. And some companies have become pretty big, you know, even been sold offshore. You know, a lot of operations, of course, are not nowhere near as big, but people are able to make a living. But it's given us a lot of local content. But, you know, in other countries, you know, money goes to a bigger public broadcast like the ABC in Australia or um, BBC in the UK. Has it come at a cost, really, of us not having strong public broadcasting and now the government is actually trying to give us as New Zealand is something that's closer. Uh, there would be people who would argue that one way and the other way, you know, in, in amongst our members. You know, oddly for someone who, as you say, does have a few hats across this, I don't actually have a strong feeling about it. Um, I definitely think what they're doing could work better uh, than what we've currently had but as with everything in life, so much is in implementation. Does your Sparta role actually make that difficult? Because the certainty of funding for public media, does that kind of come at a cost to discretionary or contestable funding that supports uh, screen production and production companies? I mean, obviously I have some things I have to manage being involved with both the RNZ board and Sparta. But, yeah, I can usually kind of manage those. I mean, there's certain things, you know, you just can't share information across. And in a way, I kind of just keep my own personal views out of it. And I, you know, when I'm wearing my spider hat, I'm kind of thinking about my members and what they believe. And when I'm wearing my RNZ hat, I'm kind of thinking, you know, what RNZ's position is. So you sort of just balance it. It can be a little tricky at times. But, yeah, it's, I mean, you know, in New Zealand, it kind of happens that you're on different things. In a weird sort of a way, RNZ's aim and Sparta's is quite similar in that RNZ is, you know, loosely in support of the move, but with the proviso, you know, that it be done well and that nothing affect, you know, the taonga that is RNZ. And, you know, wearing my Sparta hat, it's we're kind of similar. You know, we're sort of loosely supportive. We're certainly supportive of strengthening public media, which is the original goal. Uh, but, yeah, with that proviso of, you know, do it well, don't mess it up, you know, a lot at stake here. So I kind of, I guess because they're reasonably aligned, I've sort of been able to do it. But, yeah, I do have to um, do the dance occasionally.
When uh, the Select Committee at Parliament held hearings into the Aotearoa New Zealand public media legislation, um, you said on behalf of, of SPADA that the anxiety was that no one was saying how much would be ring-fenced for local production. Uh, you said, is it the same as what it is now? Uh, is it more because there'll be more public media outcomes to realise? You know, if it's less, why are we doing this? But if they decide there are things that are more important than you know, big budget local dramas or so on, isn't that just something that you, your members would have to adapt to? I think that's a fair argument. I mean, in the end, this is actually about New Zealanders who pay tax and what they get in return for that. And But I don't actually see the two things as separate because the content that will be being made for the new entity might be a slightly different type of content in some cases, but it will still be made, being made by producers and production companies. Um, so I don't think it will, as long as there's, you know, not a sudden reduction in potential funding, um, I would say that our producers will be fine. Yeah, the BBC, for example, is, uh, I think something in the order of a quarter of BBC's productions are actually mandated to be commissioned from uh, independent outside commercial production companies so that that industry can be sustained. Is that possibly a solution down the track if Aotearoa New Zealand Public Media is set up uh, and you know more of the production funding is coming from that source rather than through New Zealand On Air and the contestable system that we have now? That would be interesting and probably good, I think. I, that That was actually kind of what we were submitting on to the Select Committee. There isn't anything at the moment that really enshrines it in the draft legislation or the charter. Interestingly, there is in the business paper, but it hasn't carried through. There's only a clause about interacting with the media generally, which we take to be more about uh, other platforms and competitors. In fact, some of the international models of mixed model public media entities, you know, that is part of their mandate almost, is to help develop a strong and healthy local production sector. Because, you know, it's, it's in a country's interest to get that stronger and stronger, especially in the age of shows selling around the world and co-productions and all of that. Do you have concerns that at the moment uh, all we have is, um, as things stand, this government um, with a three-year allocation that was made in, in, bu- in budget uh, 2022, uh, stretching out for the next three years $109 million of operational funds per year, and after that no certainty at all, and if there's a change of government, uh, even that may not be forthcoming. Does that worry you? Yes, it does. It does worry us a lot, and that's one of the things, you know, it, it has been kind of worrying to hear the opposition say they would turn it around because I don't think you can do something as big as this in July and then turn it around in November. You know, whatever they may think of it, that that would be extremely disruptive and difficult. So I'm hoping that that, you know, that common sense would prevail in that respect. Back in, I think, 2018, you were appointed to a body the former minister, Claire Curran, set up with the goal of trying to find a way of of having and uh, setting funding such that it would be at arm's length from government and actually give you know the industry and the public uh, sector uh, in broadcasting greater certainty. I mean that didn't come to much because you know the minister changed, the plan changed. But um, at that time, you know, were you kind of heartened that at least this government seemed to be thinking that we need to set up something uh, that would last you know beyond um, you know one term of government or, or one uh, policy set by one party. 
Yes, I was. And I would say, you know, our Sparta members were too. And and that's the thing to um, add into this conversation is, you know, while we have had anxieties about ANZPM and how it might happen and, you know, any downsides that there might be and funding and all of that, you know, at least we do have a government who does actually care about the screen industry and the broadcasting industry and is trying to do the right thing by us and... Um, you know, is actually thinking, well, what might work here? What might improve things? So, you know, that's a positive thing. You, you would have seen, say, in the past, we had the TVNZ Charter, another Labour-led government uh, intervention that, that didn't survive very long and, and, and a change of government reversed it. We had the TVNZ Channels. There was limited funding for that and it only lasted five years. Do you worry that with only three years committed by the current government that this, this could end up being another you know, short-term intervention by a Labour-led government? I think that's probably everybody's concern, and I think it's a legitimate concern. I mean, this is a more complex change, and I think it would be harder to reverse. I guess the bigger danger is, as you say, the funding, and I don't know how you enshrine that into the future. I guess what you know, what I might have hoped, what we might all have hoped, was that there would perhaps, for something as big a change to broadcasting as this, that there might be more of a cross-party buy-in. Uh, I haven't seen that happen, unfortunately. That was the president of the Screen Producers and Development Association, Irene Gardner, who's also a former commissioning head at TVNZ and currently a board member at RNZ. This week on Midweek Media Watch, our weekly catch-up each Wednesday with Knights on RNZ National, I spoke to Karen Hay about the coverage of the surge in concern about retail crime and anger in the wake of the death of dairy worker Janak Patel in Auckland. And we also spoke about local documentaries diving deep into existential questions about our future, unexpected media moments from Qatar's controversial World Cup and the rise in angertainment. The Californian punk band's even done a song about it. I need spoon-fed points of view provided Say it enough and it's decided The advertisers see it all appeals to me Google and Facebook get excited That's in this week's Midweek Media Watch on the RNZ website if you missed it, or our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it in our podcast feed. Now on Midweek Media Watch this week, we also talked about journalists walking off the job at our biggest news publisher, Stuff. Earlier this week, members of the main journalist union, Etu, picketed Stuff's premises in Auckland, Hamilton and Wellington, and a 24-hour stop work is due to be held next week. Now, at the heart of this is a below-inflation pay offer that Dominion Post journalist and Etu delegate Tom Hunt described as an insult to the journalists that Stuff claims to be so proud of. Now, journalism's never been an especially well-paid job, except for a few managers and presenters at the top end of the pay scale, but no major news organisation has had its journalists go on strike for almost a decade and a half. So this week, Hayden Donnell asked Tom Hunt, why now? It's most almost entirely about pay. Um, we've become very close to an agreement with the company, kind of achingly close. What we, we're trying to get, the union is trying to get, 
everyone to match the cost of living increase, which has been 7.25% over the past year. I don't think anyone disagrees that to keep journalists in the profession, you need to start paying them a bit better. That's not just stuff that's you know across the board. I think every media organisation is starting to realise that. Um, it really comes down to you know people being able to earn enough to to live properly. And we're not talking people earning huge money here. We're not you know trying to get big increases for people over hundred grand, say, but and almost taking those people right at the bottom out, saying, look, treat them separately, because we all know they have to get up, go up quite a lot more than that. Now, negotiations ongoing, uh, even as we're talking today, there's going to be more meetings. Journalists' pay has been under pressure for a long time. Even then, it's actually quite rare for this kind of thing to happen and for journalists to go on strike. Why do you think that is? Well, I've sat through quite a few of these negotiations over the years I've been doing the union stuff. People really want the company to keep going and all that stuff, and there's a lot of sympathy there for the other pressures. So people have been willing to take a smaller increase, you know, than this low, you know, one two percent that kind of thing. But what's different now is that real cost of living thing, where people just can't afford to keep going the way it is. You know, if I talk about that person eating baked beans three nights a week, you know, they're, they're not alone. You know, we set up a, a hardship fund um, where people earning a bit more can donate and help fund the younger ones or lower paid ones through the industrial action. And the stories out of that, they're absolutely heartbreaking. People are just really struggling to live now. And that's the difference, I think, is, is that, you know, it's gone from not having the nice-to-haves to not being able to have the need-to-haves um, and that's, I think, why people are really willing to strike. People are really kind of wanting to take a stand this time, and I've never seen it like that. Maybe people don't know what journalists are paid. So what are journalists paid? There's very few journalists, um, well, anywhere, not just stuff, who'd be earning in the, in the six figures. Most of them are, are kind of, you know, mid-range, I'd say, would be in the 60 to 70 range. Sadly, you know, if you've got a mortgage, kids... All those kind of things, it's really not enough these days. Literally today, one of our really really good reporters is uh, having his last day and, you know, incredibly diligent, all that kind of thing. He just can't afford to stay uh, stay with us anymore, unfortunately. Um, you know, he's got a kid, got a mortgage, you know, and those realities have come into play. Now, the company's argument, though, is that, look, its costs are rising. The cost of paper's going up a whole heap. It's subscriptions uh, for papers, they're still falling. Times are tough. It's hard to keep up with inflation. Now, do you have some sympathy for the company's point of view there? Look, absolutely. Um, that's you know that's why we've kept it at the cost of living increase. And the- Quite a lot of optimism about stuff when Sinead Boucher bought it for a dollar. What happened? How has there become increasing disillusionment here? You're right. There was absolutely. Uh, a lot of support when Sinead brought it. And I've, hands down, I think it was a great move by her um, back then. I think we wouldn't have a company if it wasn't for that. Really, is, it's not a feeling against Sinead or the company so much. It's just a, a, it's a, there seems to have been a kind of almost a, a breakdown and feels like kind of almost the emperor's new clothes in terms of this pay thing where... Well, now you've got 200 people saying, look, you've got to actually start paying us properly. Um, and I, I look, I really hope we can actually sit down and sort it out. I don't think anyone holds any grudges against the management. And I know for a fact that uh, reporters on the ground have huge respect for their most of their immediate managers, not across the board, but 
um, it's not an irreparable situation. We just need to get this sorted out. There's this other kind of drama or point of contention going on and stuff right now, which is a regional news organisation. There was fear at the time that there would be job cuts in these regional newsrooms. Is that a factor there as well, even though it has turned out that no jobs have been lost? I mean, it's definitely unsettling um, when, you know, amongst all this other stuff you find out there's massive restructuring out there. I think the one the one thing they did good was have a kind of a so last-in, first-off policy. So it meant the people who are really entrenched in the communities out in Southland, Palms and North, Taranaki, all those places, they're the ones kind of generally staying, which is good. But, I mean, it's definitely been unsettling. Whenever there's restructuring of any sort, people definitely are unhappy. And, you know, I guess we'll come out in the wash how the new system works. Um, I really hope it does work well. How optimistic are you about the future? It's tough times everywhere right now, but do you think this will get sorted out? Oh, like when I first started back down in the Nelson Mail about 2005, um, I was there about for a couple of few weeks and um, we got told there's going to be restructuring. Um, and so the whole time I've been, been here at Stuff and other places, there's always been that kind of uncertainty. Uh, but, you know, the company has survived. Um, there's actually been, up until now, has been the longest period of certainty we've had. You know, there really hasn't been any kind of major restructuring. So I think it will continue. I think it will obviously change. It will probably get smaller as time goes on. But, I mean, we're hearing, hearing that it's um, stabilising. So, like, I really hope it does stay on. I think, you know, New Zealand needs more media companies uh, not less. I'm tentatively optimistic it will keep going. But it's um, good journalism um, will, of, of course, suffer if you keep losing good staff. So, um, you know, the people who have been around for a long time are invaluable. And I guess the real fear is that if there's not survivable wages, particularly in Auckland and Wellington, these kinds of cities, this could become a job that's kind of a hobby almost for the wealthy and well-supported. There might be even less diversity in the industry than there is now. Yeah, and well, yeah, for a lot of people, you almost have to be sponsored into it by slightly wealthier parents who, you know, that you can spend a few years living at home or being looked after or just being really poor for a few years until you get your wages up. Um, and so, you know, the sad fact of the matter is that does lead to less, less diversity because, you know, Māori, Pacifica tend not to be as well off um, and so you know the lack of pay does sadly lead, lead to less diversity Now this may shock you but a lot of people don't find journalists all that sympathetic and we're quite we're quite poorly trusted, you know, sort of around with used car salesmen and lawyers uh, what would you say to them? Uh, <laughs> no, look, I mean the, the media has in the past um, not coated itself in glory. I think, you know, stuff has acknowledged quite a few past wrongs there and, and we're not alone in that. I like to think that most of the uh, mainstream media in New Zealand is overall, tries to be as trustworthy as possible. Um, I've actually been really proud at stuff of a lot of the work we have done to restore trust. Um, you know, the amount of focus on, you know, getting things right and also fixing things when we get wrong has been you know, really notable. Look, journalists aren't that liked. I think we're ranked somewhere like used car salesmen in terms of trust. But being on the front line, I can tell you that journalists are hugely trustworthy on the whole. Hey, thank you very much, Tom. Hey, thank you. Dominion Post journalist and Etu Union delegate Tom Hunt talking there to Hayden Donnell. 
Well, as you heard there, Stuff has also upset its journalists by restructuring local news gathering around the country in a way that will mean fewer reporters in the local newsrooms that produce papers like the Timaru Herald, Southland Times and Manawatu Standard. The plan involved handling news in other centres instead, possibly staffed by the journalists who were in the posts that were disestablished in the local newsrooms. Well, after consulting its staff, Stuff decided to proceed, and that new system begins tomorrow. Each regional newsroom will still have an editor, reporters and visual journalists, and Stuff says all editors, news directors and reporters impacted by the reorganisation will continue to have jobs at Stuff. Well, this week we asked Stuff about what all this might mean for the future of local news and local papers around the country, and we also wanted to talk about that industrial action going on at the moment. Now, Stuff said that wasn't possible right now, but next week they will talk to us about those issues. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend. We'll be back with more on the media after the 10pm news next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch talking to Karen Hay on nights, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.